Now, I mentioned last time that I think the three great books in this course are James's Black Jacobins, uh, this book, and uh, Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth. I mean, it's interesting that Fanon and Du Bois really use the same method. Uh, James's book is an integrated story. It's a, it's a well-crafted narrative. But Du Bois and Fanon bring together uh, very disparate chapters, some of which have been published before. And so the, the, the big problem of uh, the form is, is how to achieve some sense of unity when the elements in it are so disparate. This is particularly true of uh, Du Bois's book. I mean, I, it's a profoundly disturbing book, I think. I mean, it's impossible to read it without not just being moved, but disturbed. Let me tell you a bit about him. Uh, he was born in 1868, which is within a few years of slave emancipation. He was not from the South, he was from the Northeast, from Massachusetts. Uh, he was uh, quite light-skinned, and he lived in an industrial town uh, where the underclass was Irish, not black. There were only, it's a town of about 5,000 people, of whom maybe 20 to 50 were colored. And uh, he was solidly middle class in, in, uh, in, in upbringing and, and entertainment. He spent most of his childhood uh, uh, interacting with white, playing with them, eating in their houses. And uh, he really didn't have any direct experience of the color line. This is uh, the expression that he uses for segregation in the United States. And several times in the book he says, the problem of the 20th century, this book is written in 1903, uh, when he's 35 years old, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. So that's, uh, that's the issue, segregation. But what's interesting about the book is that he did not grow up, uh, as it were, inside the color line. And he encountered it uh, more or less as an adult. When he went to Fisk College in Tennessee, uh, which is a black college, and, uh, and where he encountered Tennessee is a, a border uh, state uh, on the edge of the South, which still has a pretty deep racist history. And it's here that he encountered uh, people who had been slaves and were subject to a much more intense uh, uh, process of segregation and intimidation. So as I said, I mean, the people who lived in the slums in his hometown were Irish. I mean, there's a famous, in Boston newspapers, until quite recently, adver advertisements used to say NBNI, no blacks, no Irish, need apply. So the Irish were a kind of, uh, especially in his town, were, were an underclass. And he, I mean, he, he, he writes about them as, as being, you know, his own prejudice against them as being dirty and, and the rest of them. And, in, the, in his young adulthood, he, he explored the South uh, more generally as a teacher, got to understand something about the religion of black people in the South, as well as the racism there. One of the key phases of American history after the Civil War is the period known as Reconstruction which lasted uh, through the 1870s and which essentially routinized continuing racism not just in the south but also in the north where given that it became possible for 
more uh, American blacks to migrate to cities like Chicago. And in fact, although it was unconstitutional, for example, uh, separate drinking fountains for blacks and whites, separate toilets, separate transport, all this kind of thing became normal in this period. And there was a very uh, difficult public debate about the reasons for it. And the, uh, the whites tended to say it was the blacks' fault, that, or it's what they really want, or, or, or things like that. And in the 1890s, the main political figure for the black community in the United States, which was something like 10 million people out of a population of 70 million, was uh, Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington was, uh, was an immensely powerful figure because he gave the whites a political message that they wanted. He even said that slavery wasn't so bad and that probably blacks got as much out of it as whites and things like that, and that segregation was okay and it was better for the blacks to be passive and patient, same thing, same word. And he became immensely powerful. He was taken up by uh, John D. Rockefeller, uh, Andrew, Andrew Carnegie, the really rich people of the day. And he became so powerful, he controlled several newspapers, he even controlled many political appointments, even of white people in the South because uh, he had such immense <coughs> support. So uh, Du Bois's book is written against Booker T. Washington. The key chapter, I mean, basically he's saying there's no reason why black people should settle for second best. We need to dismantle the color line, the segregation. We need to have direct, I mean, some of the, I mean, for example, black people didn't have the vote at this time. They maintained, I mean, Booker T. Washington was in favor of maintaining the property uh, qualification for voting, which more or less uh, disqualified most black people. Indeed, the, the, the use of legal measures to prevent black people from voting is even enjoying a renaissance today in the United States. So, Du Bois was an intellectual. He, he was the first black PhD from Harvard, for example. And uh, he wrote two books uh, before this one. This is his third book. The first book was a, a historical examination of the abolition of the slave trade. It, said it was a history book. And it started in the 1680s and, and was completed in the late 19th century. His second book was a, a work of sociology called The Philadelphia Negro. And uh, it anticipated in many ways the Chicago School of Park and Worth. It was a study of, of black people in Philadelphia. Both of these books were uh, extremely well crafted and scholarly, one appealing to historians, one appealing to sociologists. He could have easily been either or both, but in the souls of black folk, he was aiming at reaching the population at large. And he wanted to move them emotionally. And this is one of the key features of the book, that, that, that the essays vary, the chapters vary enormously in scope. I mean, for example, one of them is based on semi-quantitative study of black sharecroppers in Georgia. It's a, a withering condemnation of the economic post-reconstruction condition of black people in the South. And uh, another chapter, is about the death of his own son, his firstborn. And I mean, it's, it's self-consciously written to, to get at your heart. I mean, it's, uh, he talks about this child being born with golden locks, hair, and 
olive skin and, and blue-brown eyes. I mean, you know, this is very much a mixed-race uh, heritage that the child is being born in. Very beautiful child and so on and so forth. And at the age of two, the kid died. And uh, so that leads us to the whole question of what soul means, as in the souls of black folk. And I think it's particularly important for us uh, if we're trying to examine what a human economy might be. I mean, this is about humanity. And uh, he uses the word soul in three senses. Uh, the first is that the soul is the non-material, even the immortal, part of a human being. Jesus, I knew that would happen. I thought I had it down pat. What, what's the second? <laughs> um, the, 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 uh, oh dear. Anyway, the third <laughs> is that the soul is, uh, is the sensitive feeling part of a human being. The part that we might say touches our common humanity. I'll, it'll come back to me what the second is. It's very simple, but uh, it's what happens if you decide to extemporize sometimes. Now what he's arguing here is that a very complicated message, that the soul, as we now would refer to it as music, spiritual music coming from the black population in the United States, is more or less the only thing beautiful that the United States ever produced. I mean, the United States is, uh, this is what he says, it's not, I'm not, you know, he's saying it's uh, a land of invention and adventure and, and the, the natural landscape is incredible, uh, but basically it's not a place for beauty, certainly not at the beginning of the 20th century or indeed ever, perhaps. <laughs> And yet the, the most beautiful thing that came out of, of America was, was the, the music of black people, uh, which is deeply spiritual, anchored in their religion and in their African origins. He calls them the sorrow songs. And every chapter, this is one of his attempts to inject some unity into the manuscript, Every chapter starts with a Negro spiritual, uh, the music in notation plus uh, a verse or something like that. And the last chapter of the book is called The Sorrow Songs. And that's when he, he makes his case that the suffering and basic humanity of black people in the United States during slavery and afterward uh, enabled them to produce something of universal significance and feeling. So on the one hand, we have the notion that black people have soul. But he doesn't say the soul of black people, he says the souls. So that a soul is the dimension of individual personality. He's writing, one of the reasons he's using the term is he's writing for a broadly Christian audience. And he knows that most Christian people at that time could not deny that black people have souls. I mean, at one time they did, but no longer. So this is an attempt to establish a line of inquiry uh, that cross-cuts the color line. And so on the one hand, he's arguing that, that black experience has generated something unique in the way of culture, religion, self-expression, and on the other hand, that uh, black people deserve to be recognized as equals with their white uh, fellow citizens. So, what he's doing here is, remember he's a trained intellectual. He's very proud of his, of his intellectual achievements. I mean, he writes, that, you know, that, that really, I mean, all he, there's a part of it, all he wants is, 
is to have the same reception that anybody with his uh, brilliance should get, but he can't get it uh, a lot of the time because he's black. I mean, he's, uh, so I mean, a lot of the argument is he's saying we, the black people, just want the chance to be part of mainstream society and have the same prizes as everyone else. But the fact is that black people are viewed differently by the white mainstream. And this uh, gives rise to his second main concept in the book, which is the idea of the veil. Uh, he says that, that he is writing through, inside, outside, and above the veil. What is the veil? Uh, the veil is, is, is about being unseen. It's similar but not the same as invisible. Uh, in fact, uh, Ralph Ellison uh, wrote a brilliant novel in the early 1950s called The Invisible Man. If you have a Kindle, you'll see that he's the token black writer who turns up every now and then. So uh, it's possible to be veiled uh, and visible, uh, to be uh, invisible but not veiled. But broadly speaking, he's saying that the problem for black people, as well as to some extent an opportunity, is that they are not seen for who they are. Uh, they, they, there is this distorted mirror, if you like. And I wanted to read you one of the most sort of dramatic passages from the Bible. For me, you'll not, I think, be uh, astonished to know that I'm not a Christian, but I also think that there's some really important stuff in there. <laughs> and uh, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 13, St. Paul's Acts. And uh, the language is 17th century uh, English, but it's beautiful and it's very well known. Here we go. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. He's talking about the world when the Saviour returns and creates a kind of perfect society. This is what's been, he's making a contrast between life as we normally experience it and what it would be like if it were perfect. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, glass mirror. But then, in this, when things are perfect, Face to face, now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Uh, I'll read a comment that I've made on this because it's simpler. Charity in Christian theology is love directed first towards God and then towards oneself and one's neighbours who share the object of being God's love, being the objects of God's love. In other words, charity is love of humanity. St. Paul says here that most of the time we may do with knowing a little and guess the rest. In any case, it's usually wrong. We don't understand ourselves and we project onto others 
an image of our own dark side. One day we will be able to recognize the humanity in everyone. When we meet each other face to face, instead of through the distortions of identity politics. What he's saying is we see people as caricatures and usually negative caricatures which in some sense project uh, some of the worst parts of ourselves onto other people. Now humanity is three things. It's a collective noun. It's all the people who have ever lived and will live. It's a moral quality. To be humane is to be kind to others. To treat them as if they were like ourselves. Kind as in kin. And it's also a historical project for our species which has not been achieved. It is, if you like, a teleology of the human species on this earth to achieve humanity. So the question is, what will it take to achieve this project of becoming fully human? And the answer is belief, hope and love. Clinging to what we hold dear, you know, belief in old English means something you cherish, something you hold dear. Beloved is an animate, is, is similar. So, what I believe Du Bois is trying to do in this book is to take, not to use Christian propaganda to convince white people of dubious religious belief that black people deserve a break. I mean, that is part of it. I mean, the whole way the book is written is a rejection of his own professional commitment as an intellectual, that reasoning is not enough. Maybe reasoning is important, but thought has to be taken in its context of personal and social experience. What he's writing about here, everything that he's saying is linked to individuals, to persons, to social context. It's also, I think, a profound part of the Anglophone uh, philosophy, if you like, that experience, empiricism, if you like, is the, the foundation, a more secure foundation of knowledge than reasoning. It's not that he abandons reasoning, far from it. I mean, it's an extremely carefully argued book. But he's also saying we can't get, he can't get the message across unless uh, what he has to say is, uh, touches on those things that matter for human beings, which is belief, hope, love. And finally, he brings in uh, what became his trademark concept, the idea of double consciousness, that every black man is an American. He's, at this point, he's talking about America. He's quite explicitly not talking about black people everywhere. He's talking about black people in America. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to that. I mean, it changes over time. But he's saying that any black American has a double consciousness, which is, on the one hand, he uh, experiences himself as a part of the society at large, and at the same time as someone who is excluded from it, who is somehow operating behind this veil. And so this is the political problem, you know, that any black person this is Du Bois, not me. I mean, that any black person, on the one hand, wants to be loved and accepted, and on the other hand, hates what is actually happening to him. And so that leads really to a double movement in the orientation of black people to their society, which is either to try and join it or to try and separate from it. And he's saying both of these uh, aspects of black consciousness are legitimate, but in this book, he's trying to join. He's a young man, he, he, you know, he studied in Germany, in Heidelberg, I mean, he's a star. And uh, he's not all that black either. I mean, you know, so 
I mean, he has a, 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 you know, quite a problem and, and he, uh, identifying himself with people whose condition and history is very different to his own. I think I, I could, before I go back into the book, I'll tell you something about what happened to the Du Bois. Gradually, he took the second line, that is, of separation rather than integration. And that drew him towards Pan-Africanism, the idea that black people everywhere share a, a destiny. He became a communist in, after the Russian Revolution. Uh, one of his most famous books is Black Reconstruction in America, which is an attempt to revise uh, orthodox opinions about what happened after the Civil War. He became more and more at odds with the American government. I mean, they did what they loved to do, you know, uh, impounded his passport, prevented him from traveling, uh, things like that. And then eventually, at, uh, in 1961, at the age of 93, he went with his second wife, Shirley, to Ghana on the invitation of Kwame Nkrumah, uh, the president of Ghana. Uh, and he died uh, two years later, in 1963, in Ghana. He renounced his US citizenship he identified completely with the independence struggle in Africa and the unity of, of black people everywhere, the, the, the pan-Africanist uh, ideal. And his, <laughs> I actually turned up in Accra uh, in 1965 as a, a, an extremely immature graduate student, 22 years old. Shirley Du Bois was head of national television. She was 30 years younger than his second wife. But I still remember Shirley Du Bois in charge of television in Ghana in, 19, in the 1960s. But Kwame Nkrumah was uh, removed by a military coup and the soldiers uh, expelled her. And she went to live in Egypt for the rest of her life. So there are these uh, uh, interesting crossovers. You know, but if it, last time I talked about C.L.R. James, and uh, how in the 1930s, with George Padmore, he organized the International Africa Service Bureau. Uh, James, later, he, he went to the States and he sent uh, Kwame Nkrumah, who was then known as Francis Nkrumah. And you, know, you can read, I've read uh, in, in James's uh, archives, you know, letters to Padmore. I have this very promising African politician who's just finished a degree in Lincoln College, Francis Nkrumah. I think he's a bit naive, but I'm sure we can train him up uh, to an adequate level. You know, there, there are these, uh, of course, these West Indians are incredibly arrogant. I mean, they thought that they had a huge advantage over Africans because they were born speaking French or English. Whereas poor Africans had to learn their own language and then some other language on top of it. So they felt that, that they had a closer relationship to civilization, really. I mean, some of it is not pretty, I have to say. It doesn't read very well from a contemporary African point of view. I mean, I ran into James, as I mentioned. It turns out that I almost crossed with him in Accra. We're all part of this history. Uh, he's a, a major part of it. Now, I, I won't go through all the chapters in the book. I mean, the book is incredible. I mean, you've got to read it, you really do. <laughs> and one of the chapters is, is dedicated to Alexander Crummel. Now, Alexander Crummel was a, an American black figure older than Du Bois. And in fact, the, the essay that he writes there was written on Cromwell's death. Alexander Cromwell was a, a professional priest and in a Protestant Baptist or Methodist priest. He had a horrible time trying to find the church. He was 
subjected to tremendous discrimination by the white church hierarchy. And uh, at one point, he decided to give up the United States and went to Britain. And when he arrived in Britain, he was taken up by some of the leading uh, progressives at the time. William Wilberforce, who is widely credited, not entirely justly, as having initiated the abolition of the slave trade. And Alexander Cromwell is, uh, is credited with being the first black person to receive a degree from Cambridge. Well, uh, this is a diversion, but I, I've got to tell you this. I was director of the African Studies Centre at Cambridge in the 1990s, and what I didn't like about African studies was the idea that Africa was over there, and we, the white researchers, studied it as an object. So I put a lot of uh, effort into trying to show that Africa's history and our history were very closely intertwined and should be studied together. So one of the things that I decided to do was to study the history of black students at Cambridge, to which I had access you know, through the archives. And of course I came uh, across Alexander Cromwell quite quickly, he did get his degree in Cambridge, and he uh, developed ideas of Pan-Africanism, which in many ways uh, anticipated uh, the ideas of Marcus Garvey in the 1930s. In other words, he wanted American blacks to go to Liberia, which was already a kind of United States protectorate, and he wanted to essentially develop a Pan-Africanist movement there. In fact, he stayed there for 20 years and didn't really succeed a great deal. And then he went back to the States where I think he had some moderate uh, recognition. But he is a very important figure. However, in exploring the history of blacks, I found another one who was... Uh, George Bridgetower, uh, around 1811, 1812. This is an incredible story. I mean, I'm, this guy was the son of uh, a West Indian domestic servant in, in, the, in Hungary and a Polish female domestic servant. But he was a child prodigy violinist. And uh, he became quite famous early, and he ran into Beethoven, who, uh, who, who created this, an extremely difficult violin sonata, which they played together. Uh, but then uh, Bridgetower fell out with Beethoven over a woman, but I don't think it was what you think. I mean, uh, Bridgetower... <laughs> Bristow insulted a woman friend of Beethoven. So Beethoven, who called this sonata uh, Sonata Mulatica, because uh, the guy was a mulatto, you know, and uh, uh, named it after him, he scrapped it and, and it was renamed the Kreuzer Sonata after another uh, violinist who actually never played it because it was too difficult but it's still known as the Kreuzer Sonata. So after all of this, Bridgetown ended up in Georgian England, you know, like uh, the time of Jane Austen's novels, that kind of thing, and was taken up by the Prince Regent, who became George IV. Uh, he came to Cambridge, he got a BA in music at Cambridge, and then was thrown out for drumming in the Market Square on a, Monday, on a Sunday morning. I mean, this guy, you know, has nothing to do with African drums. I mean, he's a, a Hungarian uh, mulatto or whatever, of various parentage, but he decided that he would make a statement and he played African drums in the market square on a Sunday morning. Epate les bourgeois. And uh, so anyway, George, I mean, there are all these incredible stories. I mean, I could multiply these stories. But in the course of it, I discovered something that was really much more shocking, which was that Cambridge 
was the, the heart and soul of the abolition movement in England in the early 19th century, or the late 18th century. I said last time that James rescued the Haitian Revolution from obscurity and sought to place it alongside the American and the French revolutions. But always, to my mind, there's always been a question of what happened to the British Revolution. I mean, everybody knows that the British had uh, an industrial revolution. But I believe that the British were at the center of a political revolution, and that this political revolution was the abolition movement, and that the abolition movement was an international movement which made it less easily identifiable with a particular place. But the thing that, that was astonishing to me was that I discovered that, that really almost all the uh, uh, rebellious activity around 1800 in England had Cambridge as its focus. I mean, this goes against the idea of Cambridge as ivory tower, separated from politics, uh, all of the things that we've come to treat as if they were traditional. The fact is that the Member of Parliament for Cambridge was William Pitt, who was the, the Prime Minister. He was a Tory. Uh, he was in favour of the abolition of the slave trade. He was one of only three Tories who voted for the Act in 1807. But he set up his friend William Wilberforce uh, as one of the leading players in this. But I began to see uh, an incredible cross-section of the Cambridge community, all of whom were very active on behalf of the abolition of the slave trade. The, the most radical newspaper in Britain at the time was called the Cambridge Intelligencer, and it was run by a journalist who advocated slave emancipation by revolution. And this was in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, when the English were fighting Napoleon in some kind of counter-revolutionary war. I mean, these people were very uh, amazing. So I, I mean, to go back to James's account in Black Jacobins, which I didn't mention. I mean, James had a standard explanation for why abolition took place when it did, and the. The reason was the rise of industrial capitalism. The industrial capitalism needs free wage labor, and slavery was an impediment to capital accumulation. I mean, you know, the fundament, the logic goes as follows. Why buy the labor power of a human being for the rest of his life all at once when you can buy a little bit, you know, an hour's worth, and tie up much less capital buying it? So, so wage labor allows a form of slavery, some people would say. Uh, people still depend on it, but it ties up a lot less capital than having to buy somebody for life. There are other arguments. This uh, argument was taken up by one of uh, James's pupils, uh, Eric Will Williams, who published the book in the 1940s. He ended up as the Prime Minister of Trinidad, and he wrote a book called Capitalism and Slavery, which is more or less uh, James's argument expanded. Now, you know, I think there's a, a, a clear uh, link here at a certain level. Uh, but my investigations revealed something else, which was that there was an ideological revolution in Britain in the first half of the 19th century. And it had three components. One of them was evangelical Christianity. There's a, a very good book called The Age of Atonement. It's all about salvationist Christianity, the legacy of Wesley and his Methodism in the 18th century. The second uh, strand was economic individualism. We know all about that. The idea that uh, Smith's idea that the market uh, economy is the best way of pursuing uh, wealth and prosperity, uh, especially if you let individuals perform in their own interests. 
But the third strand of all this, which somehow brought the two together, was the abolition movement, the belief that uh, slavery had to be ended. And this went very strongly across uh, many uh, parts of society. Uh, for example, the Darwins, who were a Cambridge family and were related to the Wedgwoods, who made the uh, pottery. I mean, Wedgwood produced a, a best-selling uh, dish showing a, 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 an African breaking chain, saying, Am I not a man and a brother? Which is one quote. So, for example, the Darwins boycotted West Indian sugar, they prayed for the slaves before every meal. The guy who had most to do with the abolition movement in Britain was a guy called Thomas Clarkson. And Clarkson had a kind of personal museum, a chest that he took around. And he would open this chest and use the objects in it to illustrate his lectures. And he would go to Bristol and Liverpool, the slaving ports, and he would uh, buy or steal the thumb screws and instruments of torture. And he went to West Africa and he found uh, what, he, you know, what they called at the time uh, the instruments of, uh, of, of legitimate trade, coffee, uh, different kinds of, uh, of agricultural products. I mean, the argument was there is something that these people can contribute to the world economy from their farming, they don't have to be enslaved. Uh, and you know, he would pull out these, these objects and use them to illustrate his talk. I mean, when he went to Liverpool, he was thrown in the sea by uh, the, the slaving interests. When he went to Manchester, which is my hometown, he was met by a crowd of 10,000 workers who cheered into the echo. So what I'm suggesting, I know this is all perhaps a little too personal. But the, <laughs> uh, but the point about all this is uh, that the abolition of slavery is not simply and mechanically attributable to the rise of capitalism. Surely there is uh, a relationship, as there is between the development of utilitarianism, of economic individualism. There is definitely a relationship with evangelical Christianity. Cambridge was a major center for the training of missionaries, for example. People like David Livingstone fit very uh, easily into uh, this constellation of interest. The point about it is that all three strands reinforced each other, and that the one which had the most direct political impact was the public struggle to end slavery. Finally, back to uh, Du Bois. It's always going to be a difficult one for me because, uh, and like I said, I mean, the whole way that, that, that Du Bois writes the book makes it, for me, impossible to objectify by summarizing it. It's written in such a way to, to get, make a visceral impact. And it's a lot more difficult to sort of summarize the core argument, if you like. So what you have here, because perhaps while you're thinking, it would be great if you could. Of course, it would be even better for me if you don't ask any questions, because then I can say, you see? So here we have a guy you know, who, who actually had to discover the black problem and eventually identified with it and became a spokesman for a particular solution to it but against, in some sense, his own history, or as an aspect of his own self-discovery. He uh, desperately wanted to be accepted for who he was, and not as some bright black man who managed to you know, jump through a few hoops. Uh, but he always recognized that, that the system he was living in you know, produced a legitimate response of hate and a desire to get as far away from it as possible. And, uh, and the logic of his own development was becoming more and more alienated from American society, less concerned that he, as he was in this book uh, with the uniqueness of black experience in 
uh, North America and the United States, and uh, more concerned with the drive of black people and people of African descent on both sides of the Atlantic to achieve some kind of political emancipation through the abolition of colonial empire, things we uh, touched on last time. Uh, so, have you got, yes? He said there is more between Pete and Wilberforce ah. in relation to the abolition movement. Yeah. So could you give us a little bit more light? Yeah, I mean, it's what I, it, 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 it takes us to, back to the Black Jacobins when, you know, I mentioned that the Haitian Revolution had a huge impact in Britain following the American Revolution. Not the, well, the French was obviously important too, but I mean, the, the, the secession of the colonists in America was followed by this uh, slave revolt in which, as I said, uh, an army, a British army of 50,000 people were wiped out. And in fact, the war against Napoleon was delayed by five years until they could get a similar army together again and gave it to Wellington, who went to Spain and fought the Peninsula Wars and eventually Waterloo. So, I mean, this was a, a matter of huge significance. I mentioned also that the West India lobby was the dominant political force in British politics. And they had estates in the Caribbean, but they also had estates in southern England, and they were you know, linked to the city of London, they were mayors, and, and they were members of parliament. I mean, this was the dominant political force, and they were mostly Tories. Now, Pitt was a Tory, and he was, the, you know, from the age of 23, the prime minister. Uh, but he saw that the uh, uh, transatlantic empire was finished. And, uh, and what he advocated was um, developing trade with India and with the Baltic and Russia. And uh, the one port, in major port in Britain, that was not linked to the Atlantic slave trade was Hull. And uh, Wilberforce became the, uh, uh, this is on the east side, on the North Sea, and of course they had established links to the Baltic and Russia, fur trade and all that kind of thing. Uh, so Wilberforce, I mean, uh, Pitt realized that he could not be the official leader of this movement because of his party. So he set up his friend Wilberforce, who was from my college, as indeed was uh, St. John's College, Cambridge as indeed was Wordsworth, more or less at the same time. I, I mentioned last time that, that Wordsworth wrote uh, a sonnet about Toussaint Louverture, the leader of the Haitian slaves. So uh, basically, Pitt set up Wilberforce to be the front man in Parliament, operating out of Hull. I mean, the major ports at the time were, were uh, London, Bristol, Liverpool, and Glasgow. And all of these were involved in the uh, transatlantic trade. So uh, my argument uh, against uh, uh, James and Williams is that uh, the, the faction that engineered abolition initially in Britain was not the industrial capitalists that were uh, growing up in Birmingham and Manchester and Leeds and places like that. They were a fraction of the merchant colonial elite who uh, believed that India offered more secure prospects in the future uh, than uh, uh, the Caribbean and North America. And, and, and really this is what happened to Britain's Industrial Revolution. It started in the North and the Midlands and Scotland. It was more or less independent. Nobody in the city of London, the, the bankers of the day, invested in this. Their capital came uh, independently. And at a certain point in the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution was hijacked by this class, the political class in London, with its ties to colonial empire, and uh, trade uh, and not to manufacturing production.
And that more or less was the end of Britain as an industrial power. So that, you know, so for me the, the pit story gets us in at an early level. I mean there are other writers on 19th century Britain who argue that it's a mistake to see 19th century Britain as an industrial capitalist power. Because cities like Manchester had almost no representation in Parliament. I mean, the Parliament was made up largely of rural constituencies linked to the aristocracy and colonial trade through the city of London. So there was always this kind of division. It's uh, something I grew up with, you know, hating London for what they did to us. And, and there's even more reason to hate London now on the Cameron, where they, I mean, the Tories actually go out and say, uh, well, let them all basically go. Or they even say, I think people should be paid less in the North, because after all, the standard of living is lower. And uh, things like that. So there, 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 has, there is this tension, and I think that, that James, James's Marxist analysis uh, doesn't actually uh, tackle the political uh, realities of 19th century Britain, which, which were, were in some sense separate from the development of industrial capitalism at that time. Of course, there was the free trade movement, uh, which split the Tory party in the middle of the 19th century. And that, I could go on. Uh, is that sort of what you were asking for? Yeah, one more thing. Tico. Um, feel free to decline this invitation. I'd love to hear you uh, sketch out where we are now uh, in our current moment and analogizing it to the debate between Booker T. Washington and Du Bois. Um, so one story could be we have a segregationist, pro-segregationist, let's be separate, which we've overcome internally in the United States, let's say, by uh, overcoming formal legal inequality. Um, so maybe we say, oh, we're in the Du Bois world. But maybe if we take the scale internationally, we'd say, oh, no, we're still in a Booker T. Washington world because everyone has to live in their own little box called countries. Um, uh, but then, then your Du Bois story comes in as interesting with the Pan-African. I feel like you've sort of... Well, I think, first of all, it's a 12-lecture series, and this is number five in the series. So, so, uh, so if you didn't hear what he said, I'll, 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 I'll say. What he's saying is that the Booker T. Washington Du Bois uh, conflict, if you like, uh, has contemporary relevance. And you know, and, and uh, both within the United States and its internal politics, and in uh, the situation that Africans face in the world at large, where they are kind of expected to uh, make do with the the boxes that they're part of, the national countries, which in fact uh, impede the, the process of emancipation. That's more or less what I said last time. Uh, and thank you for it. I mean, it's, it's a theme that I hope that we will uh, be able to explore more fully later.